We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. A weekend podcast for you here on this Saturday morning. Jay Gruden will be our guest. Uh, We will talk about the current NFL season, the current Washington football team situation, and I'm sure we will weave in some old stories about when he was the coach here. Uh, Who knows what we'll touch on. I'm sure there will be something there um, of interest uh, to all. Let me just mention that we're not going to talk um, about the John Gruden lawsuit against the league, which was news that broke yesterday. Jay was pretty clear. He said, look, I don't know anything, and I can't say anything anyway. So he said, go ahead and ask me, but um, I don't, I'm not going to be able to comment on any of it. And so we won't do that with Jay. For those that missed it, John Gruden is suing the NFL and Commissioner Roger Goodell in the wake of those emails, which were private emails between him and Bruce Allen and him and Bruce Allen and others being leaked. Um, Gruden's attorney, Adam Hosmer Henner, uh, wrote the following in their complaint, um, in their lawsuit, lawsuit complaint, quote, the complaint alleges that the defendant selectively leaked Gruden's private correspondence to the Wall Street Journal and New York Times in order to harm Gruden's reputation and force him out of his job. There's no explanation or justification for why Gruden's emails were the only ones made public out of the 650,000 emails collected in the NFL's investigation of the Washington football team or why the emails were held for months before being released in the middle of the Raiders season. The lawsuit says the NFL pressured the Raiders to terminate Gruden and intimated that further documents would become public if Gruden wasn't fired. According to the suit, Gruden lost a sponsorship deal with Skechers, was pulled from the Madden NFL 2022 video game, as well as having future employment and endorsement prospects damaged. He's seeking unspecified damages on seven claims, as well as punitive awards and attorney's fees. NFL spokesman Brian McCarthy called Gruden's allegations entirely meritless and said the league will vigorously defend against these claims, closed quote. Remember, these emails, which were leaked um, and led to John Gruden um, being forced out of uh, Las Vegas, contained racist, uh, homophobic, misogynistic language in these emails between him and Bruce Allen, him and others, uh, as part of uh, group texts with uh, Bruce Allen included. Um, And these were from back in 2011 when Gruden was working for ESPN as the uh, lead analyst on Monday night 
football. Uh, what do I think uh, will happen to this in relation to Washington? Well, I think the thing that we can hope for is somehow through this lawsuit and any sort of discovery um, that wa- the, the source of the leaked emails uh, is revealed. And we can hope that the source is Dan Snyder. Um, because I think that would be damaging to Dan. But it certainly seems, based on this lawsuit, that they believe that it was the league that leaked these emails. I don't know who leaked the emails. I mean, we've gone through this so many times. There are various motivations, you would seem, for uh, lots of different entities. The motivation for Dan is that he's incredibly impulsive and he hates Bruce Allen and he thought this would damage Bruce Allen's reputation and probably make you know his fan base really realize even more what he delusionally believes to be the truth, which is Bruce Allen was the problem all of these years. Um, I don't know what will come of this. There are some out there speculating that this process could lead to learning who the source of the leaked emails was. We'll see. I wanted to mention one, one other thing before we have Jay Gruden on. Uh, I stayed up last night and I watched UCLA at Pauley Pavilion play Villanova. It's very rare this time of year where you get um, these kinds of matchups on home floors. We see them all the time on neutral floors. Uh, And it's exciting to watch these games on home floors. Pauley Pavilion was buzzing last night. Number two UCLA, number four Villanova, and the game lived up to the hype. And this game would have been a great game in March, and it was November 12th. UCLA rallied from 10 down with about eight and a half to go to force overtime. They won it in overtime, 86 to 77. A lot of the key figures from that incredible Final Four game against Gonzaga last year that they lost in overtime. Many people think that's why Gonzaga lost to Baylor in the national championship game. For me, uh, Baylor was men playing against Gonzaga's boys physically. Uh, I don't know that the game in the semifinal took so much out of him. It probably did, but I think Baylor was the better team, um, and uh, they proved it on that night. I mean, that was a beatdown of Gonzaga in the national championship game. But the game last night, I mean – Haquez, who was big in that Final Four run. Juzang, who nearly came out last year, was big last night. They combined the two of them for 46 points. And then Tiger Campbell, their point guard, was sensational um, last night, as he was at times last year. They were were without their big guy, Riley. Um, But what a basketball game. What an intense environment for the West Coast. You know, an iconic venue, Pauley Pavilion, UCLA ranked two in the country. Villanova ranked fourth in the country. Both of these teams looked like really good teams, and it was a hell of a game. Uh, UCLA winning again by nine in overtime. Tonight, you get the fifth-ranked Texas Longhorns in Spokane to take on Gonzaga on their home floor. So back-to-back nights of incredible college basketball. Actually, I think it's going to be a really fun college basketball season. All right, let's get to Jay Gruden. We'll do so right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. All right, uh, on the podcast today, again, and, and I really enjoyed the first few times that the former Washington football team head coach, Jay Gruden, has been on with me. He's on with me again today on kind of a special uh, podcast, weekend podcast. And we're going to talk strictly football, despite the news that came out last night. We're going to focus on football. Jay's watching a lot of football, playing a lot of golf, too, but watching a lot of football. I am curious, before we get into some of the NFL talk, how much college football are you watching week in and week out? Yeah, whatever's on TV, I try to check out here and there. Um, But, yeah, I I enjoy it. I like watching college football and seeing the nuances, what's new, and how teams are attacking, and it's fun to watch. What is new? Nothing. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of the same stuff. A lot of zone reads. A lot of the, you know, RPOs are still going uh, pretty sound, pretty pretty good. But uh, it's it's good to watch different attacks and different styles of offenses, how they uh, go about their business and and what they do against different teams. You know, the big difference, as you know, with college RPO and NFL RPO is you're allowed three yards down the field before you're ineligible. So when you're blocking run, you're allowed three yards, which gives the quarterback even more time to make an RPO throw. In the NFL, you only have a yard. Um, I, I just think sometimes in watching college football and watching RPO with with three yards before, you know, a lineman's ineligible, it's almost impossible to stop. Yeah, defenses are having trouble uh, with some of these RPOs, especially with a quarterback that's athletic and can and obviously run and have the triple threat of handing it off, running it himself, or now throwing patterns down the field uh, makes it really difficult for defensive defense. Have you seen any of the quarterbacks, watched any of the quarterbacks that people have been talking about? You know, a couple. I think, uh, you know, just without diving into the film, it's kind of a disappointing year. You don't really see that standout number one overall pick. You know what I mean? So I think, uh, you know, somebody's going to have to merge late here in the season um, uh, and have a really good combine to even be thought about going with number one overall. And I don't know who that would be right now. 
did you see any of Kenny Pickett, the Pitt quarterback, the other night or not? Or have you seen any of him at all? Yeah, this year? yeah, he's obviously in the discussion. He's a talented kid. Um, so, yeah, there's will be some guys that will emerge late, especially with these college playoffs and all the bowl games. And you'll see how they, you know, they, they go from the start of the season to the end of the season. Some of these guys are still developing. They're young, and you'll see them uh, continue to put game after game together, and the consistency will matter throughout the season. And then, obviously, all the testing, you know, the combine and, and the senior bowl, and uh, it'll be another good chance to look at these guys. You know, I've said this to you before because others have said it to me before that people that know you really well believe that one of your um, true hidden talents uh, is evaluating players. And you've said to me before, it's something you enjoy and you think you're really good at as well. I'm curious, you know, you're not coaching right now. Have Has anybody reached out to you or have you reached out to anybody else and looked at taking maybe a different path and becoming an evaluator? Uh, not yet. Um, you know, obviously everybody's still busy with what they're doing right now. I think once the season's over and these staff start to make changes, which will be a lot, you know, both in the NFL and the college ranks. Hopefully I'll get some kind of action or a phone call at least, maybe even a text. I don't even know. But it would be nice to get back into it in in what regard. I don't know whether it's uh, offensive coordinator uh, or in the personnel side. I like both, obviously. But but what you're talking about right there is more as a coach, right? Probably. But, you know, I I would entertain personnel. I, I do like personnel, like you said, it's just, no matter where it is and who it's with. You know, you got to make sure you're on the same page with the head coach and, and whoever the GM is and all that stuff. So there's a lot that goes into these decisions moving uh, to another city. Um, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, because you like it here. I know you you have a place in Jacksonville and you have a place here, but you and, and, and the family did like living here, right? Oh, yeah. We love it. Yeah, we have a great golf community and uh, like the people up there. and It's a great area. Um, well, as we get, uh, when the season's over, um, uh, hopefully for you, you're, you're back into it. And, and at that point we can't have you on the podcast to evaluate quarterbacks and players, but it would be great to have you at some point down the road, evaluate some of these quarterbacks because Washington's going to be in the quarterback business in this off season. Don't you think? I would think so. That position uh, needs to be addressed in a major way. And uh, until they address it and have some continuity there at that position, uh, it's going to be tough. You can't win games consistently in a 17-game season and go to playoffs and win Super Bowls unless you have that trigger man that is your guy, that has the key to the city and and runs the organization. You need that guy. And and it's been a problem for years and years and years. And until it gets solved, uh, you're looking at – Seven and nine, eight and eight, six and ten, or whatever, eleven, six and eleven. Uh, you're looking at struggling uh, just to get to five hundred. Um, the last time we talked, you know, it was earlier in the season, and you liked Taylor Heineke, but you certainly weren't sold on him being uh, the answer. What is your current opinion after watching him for the last five, six weeks? Well, you like his toughness. I mean, obviously, he's kind of fun to watch. You go all over the place, but the consistency level is it hasn't been there, and that's why. Uh, they're looking at two and six or two and seven, whatever the record is. Uh, you have to have consistency at that position, and it, it's four quarters. It's game after game after game, and he'll put splashes of you know good football together, quarter here, a, a series here, uh, but the consistency just hasn't been there. He's been uh, not too good in the red zone. His accuracy, his anticipation, struggled in the red zone quite a bit. His arm strength probably isn't where uh, it should be for a top tier quarterback in the National Football League. Uh, but you do like his like his toughness and his grit. 
Uh, when you have a quarterback that's not quite as consistent as these other upper echelon quarterbacks, then everybody else has to play well. The defense has to be spectacular, and that's, I think, been the biggest disappointment, and that's hurt Heineke as well, of uh, the defense not getting the great field position, not getting the turnovers, not getting the stops consistently, uh, where the offense can you know, maybe win some games 20-17 to 17 or 19-16 to 16 or whatever it might be. Um, so defense has to play better, and obviously the quarterback has to play better as well for them to make a run here. Maybe it's already been asked of you in the past by an owner or you know a general manager type, but what are the top two, three, four um, attributes that you think are the most important in a quarterback? Oh, goodness sakes. I mean, there's, you can argue many, many attributes. Number one, you got to be mentally tough. you got to be able to handle adversity. Everything's not going to be right. Um, how he, how a quarterback handles maybe a bad game to the following week or a bad play or a bad series or getting hit in the mouth, uh, uh, how he handles adversity because – if you're not mentally tough, you can't play quarterback. You know, there's going to be negative articles, there's going to be negative tweets about you. I mean, the fans are going to boo you, your coaches are going to yell at you. you got to be able to handle adversity, number one. you got to be thick-skinned and tough, uh, physically and mentally. That's the most important. And then all the other traits, you know, obviously arm strength is important. Uh, mobility is, is becoming more and more important, especially if you're not uh, to the level of some of these top quarterbacks, Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady of reading defense, you better be able to escape. You better be able to run and, and make some plays with your legs. That's important quality to have as well. Uh, but those are just a few to, that I think are important. Who's the most thick-skinned quarterback you've ever been around? Oh, thick-skinned? Well, I mean, you have to be. Uh, you know, I think uh, probably Alex Smith. Alex Smith has been a veteran for many, many years. He had a great demeanor about him. He didn't let anything bother him. Anything affect him other than his injury, obviously, but uh, he's a tough kid. All of them, you know, Case Keenum was tough. You know, he's a tough kid. Colt McCoy is really thick skinned. You know, these guys, you have to be at the position. And Kirk Cousins, surprisingly, you know, he took a lot of heat. He took a lot of slack. Um, you know, everybody wanted Robert to play, and every time Kirk came in, and, you know, the fans didn't really, uh, really grasp him and open, uh, welcome him with open arms because they wanted Robert to play. And, and Kirk really did a good job of handling that situation. So, you know, every quarterback that I've been around has been thick-skinned. You have to be to be at this level. Um, were you excited to see how well Colt McCoy played last week? Yeah, yeah, I texted him. I, yeah, yeah, you love Colt. Love to see him have success and have some fun playing the position and uh, getting a big victory. He's had a tough road now. You know, he's had some opportunities, and unfortunately injuries have uh, all his progress as far as being a potential starting quarterback in the National Football League, but to have a guy like Colt on your team makes your team better. He's a great backup quarterback. He's a great teammate. He's tough. Uh, he'll be prepared when his numbers call, and if you really need him to win a game, uh, he's got the ability to do that because he will keep himself ready, as he proved uh, last week with the Cards. You kind of just described what you you know liked about Colt, and I think from the outside looking in, all of us always felt that you had this thing for Colt McCoy. You did, didn't you? You, you really liked him, and you wanted to see him succeed as a starter. I did. You know, he had the qualities that I just talked about, all of them. You know, he didn't have quite the arm strength, maybe the ideal arm strength, but he had mobility. He had toughness. He had great accuracy and anticipation uh, when he was asked to play in practice. And he really showed that he could make all the throws. You know, it, just, it was just unfortunate, the injuries that he had. When he finally got the opportunity, he couldn't stay healthy. You know, you know the first year I was here, he got hurt against the Giants. He hurt his neck. He was the starting quarterback down there, and uh, that's that hurt his progress not only for that year, but the year after compete, competing uh, in the offseason. That's when Kirk really took over the job uh, because he got all the reps and really did a fine job. So 
and then he got another opportunity when Alex got, went hurt, got hurt, and he breaks his leg. So uh, it's just been tough for, for Colt, but uh, I'm glad he stuck with it because uh, he's a great player, great teammate. Um, I don't know if I've asked you this before. I probably have, but I, 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 I forget if I have, so I'm going to ask it again. Two, two different um, moments for Colt McCoy and you. Uh, the moment when you guys went down to Dallas um, in 2014 uh, and you beat the Cowboys as a you know double-digit underdog in overtime, 20 to 17, Colt had a phenomenal game. And then the following week, you guys went to Minnesota, and Robert was back in the starting lineup. And I remember saying very clearly on the air. I don't think Jay want, prefers to go in this direction. I think he would prefer Colt McCoy to be the starter, um, but Robert's back and the owner wants Robert in there. Uh, take me back to that moment and what you remember about that. Yeah, there's some truth to that, you know, but uh, quite frankly, I was brought here to get Robert uh, to become a better player. I mean, he showed flashes as a rookie that obviously he had the talent to be a starting quarterback for a long time, and that's what the owners wanted. That's what everybody wanted. That's what the fans wanted. But we just kind of figured we needed to get Robert every opportunity to, you know, show that he could be a starting quarterback for many, many years to come, or not. Uh, so we had to let it play out. We're not really mathematically uh, alive, I don't think, in the playoffs at that time. Uh, so we decided to let Robert have a week uh, and see what he could do. Yeah, well, the, the rest of the season did not go well for Robert. It, uh, it didn't go well at all for Robert or us. So yeah. <laughs> um so the next moment was the Alex year and after the Houston game, um, and you got a couple of days before Thanksgiving Day game against the Cowboys. And I remember very much saying, I think if you injected Jay Gruden with truth serum right now, he would tell you he thinks the offense is going to be more dynamic and have a much better chance of, of being a productive offense with Colt in there. Um, am I right that you felt that way in the moment or not? I didn't. Maybe not to that extreme, you know, because Alex was doing a pretty good job. We were 6-3 and three at the time. We were happy with Alex, and uh, we knew that Alex was going to manage the game and do a fine job uh, in that regard. Uh, but with him going down, it's not like we hit the panic button. We're going from Alex to nobody. We went from Alex to Colt, so we still felt pretty good about our situation, our ability to win the division. Uh, so, so I would say we felt good with Colt being our starter. Not better, but we felt good. Yeah, it's just that the the game the game management part, and I understand that you guys were running the football and you were playing well defensively, and there was field position and turnovers going your way, and you know a couple of the real good offensive teams exposed you a little bit that year. New Orleans and Atlanta, I remember in particular, but the yeah. offense was not dynamic and explosive like it was in 2016, as an example. No, it wasn't there. We didn't have quite the wide receiver threat that True. we had either. We didn't have Pierre and Deshaun. Um, so that hurt a little bit. We were struggling through a lot of different combinations of wide receiver. Um, but uh, we did feel good about our roster and our team. We were attacking inside out more so with Jordan Reed, uh, working linebackers and safeties and all that stuff anyway. So we really didn't need a dynamic playmaker on the outside, uh, somebody out there that could beat zone coverage and, and the quarterback giving the ball. But if we're going to get man-to-man, we're working Jordan Reed or Chris Thompson anyway, so, or Crowder or whoever was our slot receiver. So we felt good about our uh, opportunity still to win at receiver. Yeah, that, the 2017 season, maybe I've said this to you before, 
uh, it was still alive in that New Orleans game with the big lead, and then Chris Thompson goes down and he's out, and then the disastrous end of regulation. And, you know, losing that game, I thought, was pretty much the end of the year in 2017 because I thought it was still alive. I think that was, you know, that that was the game, uh, the New Orleans game that was right before the Thanksgiving Day game. You guys ended up winning that. But you were still – that team was still alive for something. That Seattle game was a miracle, you know, finish. You, you still were pretty good offensively in a loss to the Vikings, I think it was. And you were yeah. rolling offensively against the Saints. And then once you lost Chris Thompson and lost that lead, I felt like that season was over. That was kind of deflating. Chris was having such a good year. He's such an important part of our offense. Our yeah. Attacking on third down and picking up blitzes on third down. That It's hard to replace a guy like that. and uh, especially the way we were attacking, like I mentioned before with Chris and obviously Jordan Reed, uh, two great options working linebackers in the middle of the field. So uh, that hurt us a lot, and, and uh, you know, it was tough to recover from that loss because we had that game one. You know, we were up 15, I think it was, yeah. two and a half minutes ago. Um, by the way, speaking of, of former quarterbacks, uh, Josh Johnson came off the bench like a week ago for the Jets and threw for 300 and, and uh, you know, had them right on the doorstep actually late of cutting it to a, a one-score game. And, you know, that was the first game he had played in since playing for you in that game, I think, against Tennessee or the Eagles, whichever game it was at the end of that year. Yeah, he's the last game here in the Eagles. He didn't right. play very well. He played pretty good against Tennessee. He obviously came in against the Giants and a uh, little pup. So Johnson's a good athlete. He's really, really a smart kid. He comes in, he'll learn your system in no time. You know, but uh, he was put in a tough situation. You know, he had to learn all the hand signals and all the, even start from the cadence and everything in like four days to get ready to play. So it's a tough situation for him. But I've always liked Josh. He's been on like 15 teams. Uh, he's another one of those guys that uh, he'll be prepared when he's ready to go. He has qualities that a quarterback needs to be successful consistently level with his accuracy is his biggest issue but uh, he can run he can make plays with his legs and uh, and get you through some games what do you make of the last couple of weeks in the NFL last week in particular with Jacksonville beating Buffalo with Dallas actually trailing Denver 30 to nothing with five minutes to go in the game they lose 30 to 16 then on Thursday night the Dolphins make Lamar Jackson look you know ordinary um, the, the league's always, Jay, been kind of a week-to-week league and very unpredictable. But, man, the last eight, the last six, seven days have been, you know, have been up there with some of the more surprising result, results we've seen in a long time. Why does that happen all the time in the NFL? You know, I think well, everybody has NFL quality players on their team, some more than others. But uh, you got to get yourself ready to play. I mean, sometimes teams come out flat, and then all of a sudden – a team that has lesser talent is in the game in the second quarter and then at halftime and all of a sudden it's into the third quarter, there's a turnover. And now you're going to the fourth quarter and this team that has the lesser players, uh, they're in the game and and they get fired up and they play extra hard. You get their best shot. And sometimes that is good enough. Uh, so you got to, if you have the more talented team, you better put a, put their, put your foot on their throat early and make sure that team has no belief whatsoever that they can win that game. If you allow teams to hang around, like Jacksonville, like the Jets, uh, like these other teams, Detroit, I'm sure will probably sneak around and get a win soon, uh, they're going to beat you. So you have to do a great job early in games to really make it known that, hey, we're, we got you, we're better than you, and we're going to put it to you today. 
So the big underdogs tomorrow, like, you know, and I, I think I, I bet this sport religiously and have for years, um, not successfully all the time. Uh, in fact, nobody does it successfully all the time. But tomorrow, like after last week, people are looking at the big underdogs and wondering which, you know, of these big underdogs have a legit shot. Washington, you know, is a nine and a half, ten point dog at home against Tampa. Atlanta, after beating New Orleans last week, is a nine point dog at Dallas, who got blown out. Um, the Jags after the big upset are a double-digit underdog at Indy. Uh, the the Jets, who have you know beat Cincinnati two weeks ago, are a 12.5-point underdog. You mentioned Detroit. They're like an 8.5-point underdog at Pittsburgh. The Panthers are a double-digit underdog against Arizona. It's wild that in a league of parity this week we have so many big favorites. Of those underdogs, who do you give the best chance to? Have you thought about it? Yeah, I'd say Atlanta. I think Atlanta playing against uh, Dallas. Dallas is losing uh, their pass rush. Lovey Lawrence is out. Now Gregory's out. It's going to be hard for them to manufacture a pass rush. And Atlanta's a physical team. They can run the ball, and, and Dallas has had trouble on defense as of late uh, getting stops. So I think Atlanta's got the best chance not only to obviously cover, but to win the game. Um, would you, if Matt Ryan were available next year for this team here, should they yes. be interested? There's a, he's a, he's a top tier quarterback. Always has been. He's tough. He's uh, got great arm talent. Uh, very similar, like Matthew Stafford type guy. I think you get him into a situation with some good players around him, like he has in uh, L.A. right now. He could come back, and he's still got a lot of years left. He still throws the ball extremely well. Heck, he's got Atlanta right now. What are they five and four? Yeah. Uh, you know they don't have four and four. Either, you know, four and four. Yeah. Four and four. So he's put them in position to be competitive uh, in that division. So, yeah, Matt Ryan is, is one of the top-tier quarterbacks, and if he was available, you'd definitely have to make a run at him. Yeah, I agree. Even at 37 years old? Even at 37. These guys are playing. I mean, look at Aaron, Aaron and Tom, and these guys. They're playing. They're keeping themselves in great shape, and you, you protect yourself, getting the ball out of your hands. You can play through your 43, 44, 45, and uh, for sure, Matt Ryan still has a lot of juice left in his arm. Who's the best team in the NFC right now? Oh, boy, oh, boy. You know, that's a tough call. I, I always lean towards the quarterback. So I think Tampa Bay, I think, has the best surrounding cast around a great quarterback. Um, so I would say Tampa Bay and their defense, uh, I think they'll be okay. Um, they probably have the best combination of skill, uh, quarterback, and defense combination. Obviously, anytime you have Aaron Rodgers, they have a great chance to win. Uh, so I think those two teams, you know, I was surprised at the way Dallas played last week. They were looking like a top contender, but uh, the way their defense played last week and uh, their offense has got to be spectacular on a uh, continued basis. They got to be spectacular for them to win. They got to win games in the high 20s and 30s every week. And if their offense is off, they'll struggle. But I'd say Green Bay and uh, Tampa Bay. All right. So you're, you're not a believer in Arizona? Uh, not fully yet. But Arizona, obviously, the Rams are right there. Uh, obviously, they could both do damage uh, come playoff time because. The Rams added Von Miller to go with that defense already with Jalen Ramsey and Aaron Donald. They're going to have the ability to be anybody at any time as well. So uh, you got to throw Arizona L.A. I just probably forgot about them. But, yeah, those four teams, obviously, they're the best record right now and uh, for a reason. They have good quarterback play. They're playing good enough defense. And uh, they got good skill. So those guys are tough to beat.
What do you think about the Rams just continually having this mindset of just going for it, you know, and making trades for, you know, players in the past, Jalen Ramsey, whomever this year, Von Miller, now OBJ. What do you, what do you make of, of just their whole mindset? Do you like it or not? I do like it. You know, I think there's a lot to be said. You're getting known commodities. I know you're losing draft capital, but who's to say your draft picks are going to be any good? You know, I mean, I look at the, we had two first rounders last year in Jacksonville. You know, we lose Jalen Ramsey and you get these first round picks, what we do. And, and one of them, they already traded away to Atlanta, Henderson. And uh, the other one hasn't uh, got produced in the sack department yet this year, I don't think, uh, chasing on. So uh, it's never a, 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 a you're never going to be right on these first rounders all the time. If you have a known commodity like Jalen Ramsey and, and Von Miller, and OBJ, go get them. Um, give me, you mentioned Atlanta. Uh, give me, and right now they would qualify as the seventh, you know, playoff team. Um, give me a team in the NFC that you think is under the radar that's got a chance to make a run here in the second half of the season. I don't know what you consider under the radar, like 500 team right now. Yeah, 500 uh, or sub 500. Like Seattle's three and five; they're getting say, Russell Wilson back. Yeah, I think uh, Minnesota maybe would fall in that category because they are playing decent defense, and they still have Kirk and Aspelian and obviously uh, Justin Jefferson. Um, they've lost every one of their games has been down to the last second. I mean, they lost their zone in the last second field goal. They lost overtime uh, a couple times. They've been right there. Uh, so if they can win these close games, uh, put together a few in a row, then I think they have a chance. Um I pay attention to them because I, I kind of root for Kirk. I always have. Uh, I've been on that side of the Cousins um, conversation in town for, for many years. Um, I think that they I – think, I think your guy Mike Zimmer's in trouble if they don't turn it around. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. You know, he's had a lot of time there. If they don't go to the playoffs, I would think he'd be one of the coaches around the hot seat. There's going to be uh, seven or eight again probably this year. It's just tough, you know. Uh, but I still think they have a chance to turn around, like I mentioned. But definitely uh, the rumors are out there that he's on the hot seat along with uh, seven or eight other guys. Even first-year coaches are on the hot seat now, which is just hard for me to imagine. But it is what it is. Tough job. Um, one of the things, and he's not the only one, what do you make of coaches that tend to be a little bit more conservative in an era where – kind of going for it and being more analytical. I mean, like Zimmer's the perfect example of sort of an old-school coach. You know, he wants to be balanced. He wants to run the football. He wants to be physical. He wants to be good on defense. And he wants to win these close games. Does that work anymore? Yeah, I think especially when you're talking later in the season when the weather gets bad at some of these cities, you're going to have to run the ball. You're going to have to be physical. Uh, So I think if you instill that mentality in your team – uh, early in the season, try to have some consistency with it. Then uh, when you're asked to play a physical football game, you're ready because you've done it your whole season. If some of these spread out teams and these guys who like to shotgun and throw it all over the field, when it gets to be a cold, windy day and it's hard to throw, okay, now we're going to be physical today. It just doesn't happen. You know what I mean? So you want to still that tough physical mindset early in the season and be consistent with that approach in order to have a chance to win games in the playoffs and weather gets bad. Who's the best team in the AFC? Oh, boy, the AFC, you know, you want to say Buffalo is one of the top teams, but they really have struggled protecting the quarterback, so I don't know uh, what to make of the Buffalo Bills right now. Uh, Obviously, uh, Baltimore was 
in that conversation, but they struggled mightily. They looked like a very average team uh, protecting the quarterback last week. So, uh, who else is there? Who am I missing? Uh, Tennessee. Um, oh, yeah, Tennessee. And, then, uh, and then everybody in the AFC West right now is is above 500. I know you loved the Raiders yeah, earlier sure. with your brother coaching them. I'm assuming that you're not as much of a fan anymore. But um, yeah, I don't know how much the Raiders had to do with that, but yeah. John worked so hard building that team, and I know he's proud of what he put together out there. The Ruggs thing is a tragedy. Uh, they're going to miss that speed, uh. but uh, they're obviously in a conversation. We'll see how they do against the Chiefs this week. Uh, but, you know, I think uh, everybody's waiting for the Chiefs to turn the corner, and they just haven't done it. Uh, their offense just looks stagnant right now. They're struggling to move the ball, and I don't know if Kelsey's the same guy right now with his, uh, the injuries that he's had. and uh, They're protecting the quarterback poorly, so it's tough, man. There's, there's teams with the talent that can make a run. You know, you mentioned Kansas City, the Chargers, obviously Buffalo. You know, New England's dangerous because they are physical. They're running the ball. They're controlling the clock. We talked about that physical mindset. They're playing great defense. That's the recipe uh, down the stretch that you have to have. If you're a physical team that plays good defense uh, and can run the ball, you're going to be in it. That's why Tennessee, uh, New England, they're the two most dangerous teams, I think, in the AFC West or AFC. Um, Adrian Peterson, you know, for Derrick Henry, that's obviously a big miss um, to not have Derrick Henry, but they they still, you know, beat the Rams without him the other night. Um, you know, but just out of curiosity, the Adrian Peterson thing, that that week one against Philadelphia in 2019, what was that all about, him being inactive and Geis getting the start? Yeah, you know, that was uh, tough to you. That's probably that probably because Adrian, you know, everybody liked Adrian and fans included and the players liked Adrian. Um, but at the time, we were short uh, somewhere, uh, whether it was defensive back, uh, uh, numbers wise, or safety, whatever it was. We only dressed three running backs, and, and one of the three running backs I thought had to play on special teams because, uh, you know, we needed enough back on punt and somebody run down on kicks and all that other good stuff. And um, Adrian obviously couldn't do that. Geis wasn't going to do that. And, uh, so we needed our, our guy to do that. In hindsight, I probably should have just dressed four running backs and let Adrian play a little bit. But my thought was, with Darius healthy, I wanted Darius to have the ball on first and second down. I didn't want to sub him out. I thought he had the durability, the power uh, to handle a full game workload. And if he was going to get the workload, then Adrian wasn't going to do anything but stand by me anyway. So uh, I needed that guy to be a special team guy. Obviously, it, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I kind of got beat up a little bit, and, and Darius got hurt in the third quarter, which hurt us. <laughs> I didn't anticipate that happening. Yeah, I, you got beat up over that. People were kind of outraged at it, and the, the answer you gave just gave seems pretty reasonable, um, but it didn't seem to suffice in the moment. Was Adrian pissed? Yeah, I think he was. I don't think I'll be in his Hall of Fame acceptance speech for you know what a great coach I was. I doubt that'll happen, but uh, yeah, he wasn't. You know, but he was a pro about it. You know, he'd been through New Orleans, and New Orleans cut him. He had been a couple other places where he got let go, so he kind of knew the situation. Um, it was my thought. I didn't think we should have signed, re-signed Adrian in the first place because we had uh, Darius Geis come. We drafted Darius in the second round for a reason. We thought he would be our belt cow, you know, and we had Samaj P. Ryan. We had depth at running back at the time. Uh, to throw him to the mix just takes reps off. I thought if something happened to Darius, I'd go out and find Adrian in a minute. You know, so he'd be our bell cow guy or number one guy. But if he's not your number one bell cow guy, Adrian's fourth. You know, how many times is he going to run the ball downhill on first and second down in a game nowadays? You know what I mean? You're going to do play actions. You're going to do quick games. You know, so uh, you could get down and then you're going to be throwing the ball anyway. And he's not a throwing running back. He's a downhill first, second down runner. 
utilize play actions with him in the running game, and that's it. Uh, so uh, that's the way it worked out. And, so who so who disagreed with you in the off season about re-signing Adrian? Well, obviously Bruce had the final say over everything. Bruce and the personnel department they want Adrian back, and and I, I wasn't opposed to having him. You know, I love Adrian. Adrian's a good player and a great guy, and uh, it's good to have on your team for the younger guys. It shows how hard he works in practice and and how he gets himself ready to play. Uh, to be a running back and at his age uh, really is a good example for a lot of the young guys. But I didn't think we needed another first, second down running back, especially with Darius Geis and Samaj P. Ryan in the building. I thought those two could handle the workload. Uh, and if something were to happen, like Samaj, I think, got hurt, I wouldn't have a problem uh, signing Adrian again later. I thought he'd be available. So, uh, you know, it, it is what it is, and, and uh, that's what happened. That that draft that year, there was a lot of talk about, you know, a running back. Um, and I remember Adam Schefter specifically reporting that when Detroit in the second round picked Carry On Johnson, that that's the, it, he reported that you guys were going to take Carry On Johnson with the next pick. And when he went to Detroit, that's when you decided to trade back. Was that true? Uh, we did like we. There were six backs in that draft that I thought were really good. Could really help us. Uh, and obviously, Carry On was one of them. He had a great year at uh, Auburn that year. He could catch the ball. Uh, I thought he could be a good first, second down back as well. He had a little bit more versatility than a lot of the backs in that draft as far as being able to catch the ball out of the backfield and run between the tackles. Uh, so he was definitely in our conversation. And when we chose to trade back, we thought we'd still have an opportunity to get Darius or another uh, back uh, in the second round, which we did. Were there red flags on Darius before that draft that you guys were concerned about? Yeah, there were some red flags on Darius, but I think we spent some time with him, and, and we liked his personality. We knew that uh, you know you had to keep a close eye on him. You know, he's not a bad kid, uh, in my opinion. He just needs some uh, tutelage and some good people around him to steer him in the right direction. Um, he was never a problem for us. Uh, he worked hard. He just had those two injuries. That injury in the preseason. You know, I, he came to me before the game and says, "Hey." What do I got to be number one on the depth chart? I said, after this game, don't worry, Darius. You'll be the first string. I'm going to get you seven carries, and then I'm going to announce you the starter the next week uh, going into week four. And uh, on the seventh carry, he hurts his knee. Oh. The seventh carry, yeah. he hurts his knee. So uh, he was an explosive kid. He was good for us. You know, unfortunately, he has, he's had some off-season or off-the-field incidents uh, as of late, but uh, I thought he was going to be a heck of a back for us, and that really hurt us, I thought, when we lost him. Why didn't it work out with Josh Doxson? What was the issue with Josh? Uh, you know, Josh, I don't know. You know, he's not as fast. He didn't play as fast as we thought he would. You know, he ran four or five. Not like he was a speed demon coming out, uh, but he didn't play to his speed. Uh, he was kind of a, a, a long strider. It took him a while to build up the speed. Uh, so he had to win a lot of the 50-50 balls, which we thought he could do with his vertical jumping ability and uh, but he never got a lot of those opportunities to do that down the field either. So, one, we didn't give him enough opportunities to win the 50-50 balls because quarterbacks didn't really like throwing to him that much because he always looked like he was covered. Uh, you know, And Josh's strength is the physical type play, the over-the-top of guys and letting them jump and back shoulder type stuff. But he didn't get those opportunities. That's one. He didn't play as fast. And then he had some drops too, uh, which oh, yeah. were surprising because we thought he had great hands and, and – uh, when the lights cut on, he didn't quite perform to the level we thought he would when we drafted him in the first round. Well, the the Monday night game, the, the ball that was right in his hands, um, which would have given you the lead in K- in Kansas City. That, yeah, was, that was a tough one. That was a, that big, was a tough one. That ball, 
He should have. Oh my God! We had a double move on the on the safety. He was out to uh, uh, by himself, and the, the play was designed for him. It was a double move, hit and go, and hook, line, and sinker. The safety jumped on that. Jordan was wide open, and uh, Kirk went back to the scene, which he made a great throw. It should have been caught. It should have been a touchdown. Everybody would have been happy. But it would have been easier to throw the one to Jordan. <laughs> so, so what did you? What it like? I'm curious. So, what was the conversation when he came to the bench? What did you say to him? Well, I never. You know, quarterback has the ball he's got to make the decision but you know he thought the safety was kind of hovering in a position where he could get could have got the ball if he'd have thrown to Jordan and you know after watching the tape obviously that wasn't the case but you know quarterbacks have to make those decisions he saw safety's uh, presence there I think right from the pre-snap and then post-snap the safety came down and he ended up working uh, Josh which is fine he made an unbelievable throw uh unfortunately we didn't come down with it yeah he didn't catch it um all right last one I've kept these too long per usual <laughs> <laughs> well, that was that one was right in his hands. And you know what? Yeah. At TCU, he had phenomenal hands and caught right. every 50-50 ball, as you said. And he was a hands catcher, and he had a great vertical, and he just made catch after catch in college. I loved him. I mean, I had a son at TCU at the time, so I was watching all their games. And I predicted with Doc on the, on the draft show, right before you guys picked, I said, they're going to take Josh Doxson because, if you recall, Pierre's contract was going to be up and I just thought you guys would be looking wide receiver for the future at the very least. I was shocked that he didn't um, turn into something. You, you're right. Like, the speed wasn't obvious in college. It also just looked like he didn't love it enough. Yeah, there's some truth to that. You know, I think uh, you ought to ask him on that. But, you know, he just had a really laid-back demeanor, so it didn't look like he was really that much of a fiery, competitive guy. You know what I mean? So it did look like he was kind of a – Lack of days ago, who cares type guy. I think he was competitive when it's all said and done. When he got on the field, put the uniform on on game day, he was very competitive, but he was just really laid back in his approach. And that, you know, he just no juice, if, if that makes sense. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, but he did go out there and compete. He did want to win. And, and uh, he was he was, uh, he was good for us in the meetings. He was a smart kid. Just uh, the production didn't match. Who are the quarterbacks of the young quarterbacks so far this year? Lawrence, we didn't see enough of Zach Wilson. Haven't seen enough of Trey Lance. We've seen, I, I thought we saw the best of Justin Fields on Monday night. Mac Jones, um, who's impressed you so far of the young quarterbacks? Uh, well, I think the progress that Justin's made has been uh, pretty good. You know, I think when you see his first start, you see the sacks and the struggles that he had to how he played against Pittsburgh on uh, Sunday night or Monday night, whatever it was, yeah. it's been impressive. If he continues to grow, uh, he's got a chance to be one of the top guys. He's got a chance. He's got a chance to be like a Russell Wilson type guy that can really run and throw and escape and make plays with his legs. Uh, but I've been impressed with Mac Jones too. You know, his ability to manage games, not make mistakes, has been has been great and compete. You know, I think the game he had against Dallas where he threw the pick six and he came back and, and threw a touchdown pass. I mean, I think you see the resolve that he has, the toughness he has. You're always going to want more when it comes to arm talent and escapability, uh, but the way he's managed the game has been impressive. So those two guys probably are at the top of my list. Tanny, uh, not Tanny Hill, get uh, for Jacksonville. Uh, what the uh, Trevor name? Lawrence, yeah. Trevor, Trevor, he's been very inconsistent as most young quarterbacks are, uh, but you're seeing him slowly make progress, but not as much as I would like to have seen from a number one overall pick. I think he's been probably the biggest disappointment. Uh, but you know, he's in a tough situation. They're trailing a lot of games. They've become a one-dimensional uh, too soon in games. But uh, we'll see how he does here later on as the season goes on. He gets more snaps under his belt. 
I, I lied. I got one more for you. Was there a quarterback at any point, you know, whether it was 2018 when you guys traded for Alex? I remember you saying in that offseason you didn't actually – you weren't asked to scout some of the young quarterbacks, but that was the Mayfield, Darnold, Josh Allen um, – uh, who else was in that first round? Uh, uh, Rosen, right? Uh, I think Rosen yeah. was in that first round. And then Lamar Jackson at the end of the first round that year. Um, w- w- was there a quarterback in any of those drafts that the team was interested in at any point that you really liked that you would have loved to have had the chance to coach? Well, we were in a position where we knew we weren't going to get some of those top elite quarterbacks. You know, Lamar is a little bit of a different Bird. You know, you're talking about the guy that uh, I think Baltimore has done an unbelievable job with. Uh, he really wasn't on our radar, unfortunately. So, uh, no, we didn't really uh, target anybody where we were saying, hey, we're going to trade up and get this guy. We love him. He's the future of the team because we'd had Alex. You know, we got Alex before the draft, so we didn't feel like we needed to get one. Uh, so, when you're not in the market for those top elite first rounders, then you're looking at the third, fourth, fifth, sixth rounder. Somebody could maybe be a backup and emerge as a guy when Alex. Uh, says it's time to retire so that's more on the lines what we were looking for a later round draft pick that could come in and compete as a backup you could have you could have traded kirk before 2017 to san francisco and gotten that number two overall pick you know that right we could have traded we could have got a lot more for that we could have got a lot more than that i promise you that yeah at the, yeah, a lot more than that. <laughs> so, I mean, we've talked about this before, but I, to me, that's where this organization continues to trip over its you-know-what consistently is they, you know, they, they just miss out on, on opportunities. There was no way Kirk was going to resign here. You and I have both talked about that. And there was an opportunity to trade him for a shitload that you could have gotten back. And San Francisco and Kyle, was they, they were ready to offer you number two overall. Um, and then you would have had a chance, you know, at you know any of those quarterbacks. Uh, you know, Josh Allen's the one out of that first round, out of the the, the first round guys that looks really good. Um, but you said you could have gotten a lot more than that. What could you have gotten? What do you remember about what you could have gotten for Kirk? Well, I, I don't know exactly what we could have gotten, but I know it would have been more than just one number one pick. I, I would imagine we would have got to get their number one for two years, or two, for at least two years, and maybe a couple number twos, in my opinion. Um, you're talking about a $100 million quarterback. You know, you're talking about a starting quarterback for your franchise for the next five or ten years. And obviously that's what uh, some teams were looking for. He got $100 million for a reason, because he was a hot commodity and other teams wanted him. So for us to walk out of there when you have a commodity like that with just a third-round supplemental pick, uh, it, it's, it's that I think that's the biggest mistake or the biggest thing we missed uh, in my tenure there is not maximizing uh, the return for a starting caliber quarterback. So why didn't, why didn't the organization do it? I don't know. You really, you really, you really don't because San Francisco was obviously at the top of the list. San Francisco obviously dealing with the Shanahan's was something that they did not want to do. I don't think they could stomach having Kirk Cousins be successful for Kyle Shanahan. I think that was probably in my opinion, that's probably why they didn't want to do it with San Francisco. And I think there was still some hope, I think, that we could re-sign them. I think they really thought, Dan and uh, Bruce really thought that we'd get something done with Kirk. Um, uh, in the back of their mind, there's probably another main reason. Uh, you never really see Dan losing players because of money. Uh, it's never been an issue. Unfortunately, it was more about the money with Kirk. Uh, and he went elsewhere. Don't you think, though, that that kind of mindset to be that petty, to not want to see him in a San Francisco uniform playing for a coach that you don't like personally, 
that cut off your nose to spite your face kind of mindset is, you know, part and parcel to, to why they just continually fail as an organization? Well, that's an issue. You know, you can't be stubborn. you got to do whatever it takes to make your team better. And if it means uh, sending somebody to a coach or uh, an organization that you don't like or maybe it's even a rival, uh, then you have to bite the bullet and, and make your team better. Um, and like I said before, it may have, have had nothing to do with the Shanahan's and everything to do with, hey, we think we can re-sign Kirk. Uh, maybe that was the main reason why we didn't deal him. Uh, but obviously we didn't get him re-signed and, and we got nothing for him. What's your favorite game on the board tomorrow? This is my true last question. What's the game you like more than any other tomorrow? Uh, probably Atlanta. You know, I think uh, talking about betting wise or yeah, wise, yeah, betting wise with yeah, the points. Atlanta. I think Atlanta is very underrated, and I think with Dallas's injuries on defense and their inability to, uh, to you know stop some of these high potent running attacks, I think Atlanta's going to run the ball and, and have some success with the play actions and, and keep the game close. All right, get out there, hit a couple of warm-up balls. You're older now. You need to, to loosen up a little bit and um, putt well. All right, that's the most important thing today. you got to putt well to score. There's three things, those things that you just mentioned I'm probably not going to do either. <laughs> well, well, that's terrible because that's lacking in confidence on, on the latter. But the former is – But are, are you one of those people? Because I'm prob- – it sounds like you and I are similar. I, I'll go out and I'll chip and putt maybe for a minute, and then it's like get me to the first tee and then uh, and let's go have some fun. I'm not a big practice guy. Are you? Well, as, I get, as long as I get two off the first tee, I'm good. Yeah, Exactly. You, you take a couple <laughs> swings, get warmed up. Uh, for me, it's four Advil, too, uh, about 20 minutes before, and I'm good to go. All right. Uh, yeah, you got to take some Advil. Yeah. Uh, enjoy today. Thanks for doing this, as always. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Jay Gruden, uh, everybody. Um, I always enjoy talking to Jay uh, about football. He is definitely into it, and uh, hearing some of the old stories as well um, are always uh, interesting because he was there um, front and center to a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, a lot of the stuff that we've guessed or we've kind of known for sure or things that have actually been reported. Um, but, you know, the not trading Kirk Cousins when you realize that you weren't going to be able to belly up to the market value bar um, was really one of the dumbest and most hurtful things this organization um, has passed on in a long time. I mean, the pettiness of of Dan and Bruce and this organization at the top for so long, um, there are just so many ways that they have self-sabotaged over the years. Uh, there is an example of one way. Uh, I know that they could have gotten number two overall. Jay thinks they could have gotten a lot more than that, a couple of number ones, a couple of number twos. I don't know if it was that much for Kirk, um, but it was definitely number two overall in that 2017 uh, draft had they dealt him. And they had to know at that point he wasn't coming back. They had um, really not necessarily insulted. I don't want to say that. I think they totally missed the mark on understanding what his market value would be. They offered 54 when the market value was, you know, 80 plus. Um, hell, I mean, the Jets were willing to go 90 plus. Uh, and, you know, once you realize that he was going to free agency after a second tag, um, you had to maximize um, what you had there uh, in a tremendous trade asset. Uh, but 
too petty to do it. Uh, anyway, uh, up next, we're going to talk some Nats. There was some news this week. Scott Boris and Mike Rizzo going back and forth in the media on Juan Soto. Colin Gutman from 910 The Fan in Richmond will join us to discuss. That's next right after these words from a few of our sponsors. This segment of the podcast is presented by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.ag or MyBookie.com. They will instantly double your first deposit if you use my promo code, KevinDC. If there's something written in the promo code section, just erase it, write KevinDC. Uh, They'll double your first deposit. You'll get referral bonuses if you refer people. 250% of whatever their deposit is will be added into your account. It's a college football Saturday. It's a football weekend. Plenty of action at MyBookie, MyBookie.com, MyBookie.ag. Fair lines, fair pricing. You can't go wrong um, by going to MyBookie. Uh, We welcome in on the podcast Colin Gutman. Colin is Howard Gutman's son. Howard's been on the podcast and the radio show um, a few times over the years. Remember, I've referred to to Howard as my favorite Belgian ambassador of all time, um, as many in Belgium did as well. But he's been such a help in, you know, navigating some of the Washington football team, you know, off the field uh, issues in recent years as a 27-year attorney at Williams and Connolly. And his son Colin, who's a huge DC sports fan, hosts a radio show at 910 The Fan in Richmond on weekends, and he's a huge Nats fan. And I thought about you this week and 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 others as well, and your dad reached out to me, but you love the Nats. You are um, a real Nats insider, I think. And I think some of the news this week uh, with respect to Scott Boris and Mike Rizzo going back, to, back and forth on Juan Soto was interesting. So I do want to start with this. First of all, who do you think is going to win the MVP? Do you think it's Soto, Harper, or Tatis Jr.? You know, I think the narrative is with Harper because the second half he had that pushed the Phillies toward contention was the kind of game-changing deciding factor among guys with similar stat lines. You know, Tatis has a positional value going for him, being a shortstop, but he had injury issues. Uh, so I think in a year where winning always helps you with the MVP and none of these three guys won, but Harper won the most, so I think that gets him the tiebreak. Yeah, I um, I thought Harper's you know stretch run was incredible until the very end, Colin. You know they had a chance in those final two weeks, and he did go cold over that final week and a half in some pretty <laughs> big games. Um, but it's almost, I mean, it's really not a very compelling. MVP race. And you agree that if Tatis Jr. had stayed healthy for most of the year, this probably would have been a no-brainer, right? Well, I think actually the two leading candidates for, for MVP were Ronald Acuna, who, yeah, of course. Uh, who was injured after 82 games, yeah. and Jacob Grom. So I think health this year knocked out probably the three best candidates. So it's, it's so uncompelling because you're talking about number four versus number five here on the overall best season. What would Atlanta have been like with Acuna Jr.? They win the World Series without him. Um, that was a pretty impressive season from where they were in early August. Yeah, so they don't win the World Series with Acuna. And I know that sounds like a crazy and controversial statement, but they traded for four outfielders at the trade deadline. Yeah. So if you look at the seasons they were having, they were not having good seasons. 
And then when you looked at the numbers, they just started hitting at Ruthie and Bonzian levels because baseball is a game of, you know, large sample sizes and the playoffs are a small sample size. So if they have a Kuna, they don't get desperate. They don't trade for all these guys who can kind of turn it on. And the, the production they got out of those four outfielders they traded for was better than Acuna at his best. So the, the luck of having, you know, pro baseball players who get hot during a playoffs can outweigh the, the obvious talent gap between an Eddie Rosario and a Ronald Acuna, which over 162 games is massive. So I think it's one of those, you know, in hockey you get a hot goaltender. In the playoffs, you get Eddie Rosario and Jorge Soler hitting, you know, two more homers than they otherwise would have over ten games, and that's the difference. You got so you you've got uh, Harper winning the National League MVP. Otani's a lock, obviously, for the American League MVP. What about the National League Cy Young? Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, I think that obviously the. Uh, the Otani story, right, is one of the greatest stories of our time. And we can't talk enough about that. Um, I've gone back and forth on this several times. Uh, obviously, you know, DeGrom kind of was the runaway until, until he got injured. I think Max had the narrative until the very end of the year. And again, I, keep, I hate to use that term, but voting is emotional, not statistical. So I think it's going to be burned. Because once Scherzer had a couple of bad starts down the stretch, the Dodgers didn't catch the Padres. The narrative went away really quickly. So then what you're left with is for a bunch of the stat nerds out there, you've got Corbin Burns, who led the majors in, I think it was, walk percentage, strikeout percentage, and home run percentage. He won what they call the sabermetric triple crown, which, like, of course, that's an incredibly dorky stat to look at. When you think about it, you're like, oh, yeah, if a guy strikes out a lot of guys, doesn't walk a lot of guys, doesn't give up a lot of home runs, and has one of the lowest areas in the league, that's probably a pretty good pitcher. So I think, I think he ends up with it because without a narrative, that's where the statistics land. What about the American League Cy Young? Is, is this, I mean, do, do you see it as a runaway for Ray? I don't think it's a runaway. Um, I, I think it's going to be competitive because I think Garrett Cole had the profile and had a great season. So I think it's more competitive than people think, but I do think that Ray was the most consistent, right? And I think he didn't have the ups and downs, and despite not having expectations, he kept Toronto afloat in an otherwise pretty mediocre rotation. I think the, the Ray breakout story is either a great one or he's about to be Patrick Corbin too. A lefty who had a great, you know, platform season gets a big contract and then might turn into Patrick Corbin. But I think, you know, Cole and Lynn will each have their own factions that really like them. So Ray wins it, but I don't think it's a runaway. All right. We're talking to Colin Gutman. Colin hosts a radio show in Richmond on 910 The Fan on weekends. So if you're down there, tune in for that. Um, let's talk about Juan Soto, Scott Boris, Mike Rizzo, and um, what will be a huge story uh, over the next couple of years. Um, Boris essentially came out and said, you know, his client is going to end up signing with a team that's committed to winning. It seemed to be a bit of a knockdown slap um, at the learners uh, and, and this organization. What did you make of it, and where do you think it goes um, from here? So Scott Boris is probably my favorite and least favorite person in the world at the same time. 
if he were around in the 1500s, we wouldn't know who William Shakespeare is because he's he's a poet and a bard of that level. Really? Really? He's Shakespeare? Okay. If you look at some of his quotes from the GM meeting, Uh he said, when you think about sculpting a pitching staff and you're a thinking man, the target without a doubt is Rodon, obviously making the Rodan thinker uh, reference there. He said... Teams that are pursuing a championship, they're certainly not pursuing the minimum. They're going directly to the max, meaning Max Scherzer, right? And if you look at his Chris Bryant, Sean Connery crazy speech he went on. So I love Scott Boris from that perspective. He is a poet, but as much as he may get an A in English class, he's the bully in math class, right? And it's an approach that works with a broad portfolio of clients like he has, but not for every specific client, because his goal is to constantly be raising the bar and to extract top value. When you do that, some of your clients keep asking for top dollar, and they just don't get it, so they end up having to take a fallback contract. So he's one of those guys where 80% of his guys gets way more money than they should, and it pushes the bar up for the players' union, but 20% of guys kind of doesn't work out for him. So he's a super interesting agent from that perspective. Now, what he's been championing, what he's been freaking out about for years, is that some teams are tanking and non-competitive, that's bad for an agent because it means there's fewer people bidding on his clients, right? If, if we know that uh, the Colorado Rockies are going to stink this year, then that's one fewer bidder for Trevor Story. So everything he says now is focused on tanking and anti-competitiveness. He said the Braves won because of tanking, and I, I, I keep thinking, that's stupid. One, the Braves never tanked, and two, the guys they picked up were backup outfielders having a bad season. They're not the ones who got the, the Trey Turner package and Max Scherzer package from a team that could have otherwise contended. So everything needs to be viewed through that lens. Uh, All Scott Boris talks about is tanking because he's trying to get more bidders for his clients. Now, I think him saying we have to sign with a team that competes, I think that was just part of his broader narrative. He has a really good relationship with the learners who, you know, by the way, did him a real solid, took really good care of Steven Strasburg early in his career with the shutdown then gave him a big deal while allowing Harper to go get a big deal elsewhere. So I don't think he was trying to take a shot at the learners. And I think if, if he was kind of making a nat statement, it's, it's remarkably stupid. This is a team that had a bad year and otherwise had been a contender for a World Series every right. single year. Yep. And for a town that hates its owners, uh, generally speaking, D.C. fans like the learners because they run a payroll above where our attendance is. So I don't think there's anything to be said there. Now, the Soto contract itself, is super interesting because when you look at the top annual average values now, you've got the Trouts and the Coles take out Trevor Bauer, it's not a long-term deal, in the 35 to $36 million range. So if Boris asks for that over, let's say, a 12-year term, you add in this three-year, three years of arbitration he's got left, that'll be worth about $55, $60 million. You're talking about a 15-year, $480 million deal. Right. And that sounds preposterous given the, you know, 340 million-ish benchmark that's the high watermark, 340 to 360, even though that only signs him through 86, or 36, which is not a high age to have him through. So if I'm the Nats, if I can get Juan Soto for a number that starts with a three, you know, even 400 million, let's say 30 million a year for 12 years plus his arbitration years, that's call it 415 to 420. That's a record-shattering contract Boris can be happy with. And you lock up Soto for the entirety of his career, basically. And this is a guy whose best career comparables through age 22 are Ted Williams, the greatest hitter of all time. So it kind of comes down to, will he take 410 
or will he hold out for 480? And Scott Boris is going to say, hey, Lerner family, what's 70 million bucks between friends? So that's what I think it's going to kind of come down to uh, with the Soto stare down is, is just how record-breaking are the Nats willing to be? Well, do you think they will be record-breaking? The Trout deal was, you know, in the neighborhood of $35.5 million per year, right? That's where we are at the top yeah. right now? That's the yeah. top? Um, yeah. So do you, well, Garrett Cole is 36, I think. Okay. Over a nine-year term, yeah. Um, do you do you think that the, the Nats and the Learners will go that high and that Soto will end up being a Nat for life or for most of his career? Mm-hmm. He, his contract today would be the biggest in total value for sure, even if he doesn't get the most. In total future. aggregate value, right? Okay, with, yeah, with the three years of our right. Okay, go ahead. Absolutely. So, do you think it'll now, happen? Having said that, I don't think so. I think that Boris thought Harper was going to be a five hundred million dollar man, and then Harper had a couple bad seasons. I think Boris wants to break that five hundred million dollar number and thinks that if the new CBA relaxes some of the rules. And spending goes up over the next three years. You know, it's kind of like investing into a bull market. It's, it's, if salaries are higher, they're going to get more. So I think he wants Soto to hit free agency. And I don't think Soto is the type of person to tell Boris, no, I really want to stay here, get a deal done. I think Soto, like Harper, is saying, Scott, you steer me to the record contract if we think we have a shot at it. And like I said, $420 million would be a record. 500 would be a record that would stand for a lot longer. How much more valuable do you think this franchise will view Juan Soto than they did Bryce Harper? I don't think they do. I I think this is a franchise that has a history, whether it was Jordan Zimmerman way back in the day, whether it was Bryce Harper, whether it's Anthony Rendon, who we don't talk about in the same sphere as Bryce Harper, but he was actually consistently more valuable season over season. This is a franchise that has shown they will pay for pitching, but not for bats. And then they ship Trey Turner out. So I think the learners would love to get a deal done. I think they would do that record-breaking $400 million deal. But again, I think Boris, that's where Boris is different from most agents. Most agents, Mike Trout's agent, would take $410 million over 15 years, break the record, and celebrate. Boris will say, we're going to get you 500 when you hit free agency, bet on yourself. I think that's why we don't get a deal done. To sign or not to sign, Colin, that is the question. Um... So uh, let's talk about next year's team real quickly. What do the Nats look like in 2022? What do they need? Who will they get? They're not good. That, that's the long and short of it. And, you know, I think even when they won in 2019, this is kind of a controversial take, they weren't that good. Just like the Braves this year, who were an 88-win team, you get hot in the playoffs, you win a championship, it covers all your flaws. But this is the team that kind of every year starts 19-31 and 31 for the last three years. And I think that, in many ways, is more reflective of who they are than a recent world champion. When you look at the rotation, it's, it's a punctuation rotation, as I like to call it. You've got one exclamation point in Josiah Gray, the major prospect right. who picked up in the, in the Scherzer trade, who's exciting. You've got two question marks in Steven Strasburg and Joe Ross. How healthy will they be? How effective will they be? If they're back to the top of their games and can pitch 180 innings, will be good. You don't think Corbin's a question mark? mark? Corbin is a semicolon. Okay. I don't even know. Corbin is there, but you're mm-hmm. not even sure why or whether he should be a part of the sentence anymore. Because he, he's had been a question mark for two years that's constantly disappointed. So 
I think you can't view Corbin as anything more than a fourth or fifth starter that you're paying $28 million bucks to. I don't think he's got the upside of performing like Strasburg or Ross do anymore. He's kind of getting older. He is what he is. He had a good season. But his, his ability to control his, his fastball and then his curveball off of that is just diminished from his peak. And, again, that peak was only one season. So this is a team with holes. This is a team with a payroll that's not as high as it was. But again, without Trey Turner, there's just not a lot. There's just not a lot of high-end talent around Juan Soto. I don't think they're going to tear down. I don't think they're going to trade Josh Bell. I guess it's probably a 500 team next year that doesn't make any major free agent splashes. And I think the stories to watch for the next year are what happens with Luis Garcia and Carter Kibu, our two promising but kind of unproven young infielders. Does Victor Robles? develop into a starting caliber center fielder. I remember this is a team that punted Michael Taylor away and he just won a gold glove in uh, Kansas City. So there's value to glove first guys. And then I think there's, you know, Lane Thomas is a part of that picture too. And then you've got this guy, Kid Cavalli, who I'm not sure how familiar most people are with him versus dorks like me, but he's got higher upside than Josiah Gray as a pitcher. He's our number one prospect, actually. So I think that this season is all about, you know, a couple things. It's how does Cade Cavalli develop? How does Josiah Gray develop? How do Cabert and Ruiz and Riley Adams behind the plate develop, our two young catchers? This is about do we have some core pieces that are young, you know, young cheap pieces, building blocks of every single sport, right? And if that's the case, you can go out and get someone next year in the offseason who is a Max Scherzer-type player. You can go out and reacquire a Trey Turner. You can go out and try to compete in 2023, but if Cavalli gets whacked, if Gray gets whacked, if Caber Ruiz hits 210 and ends up back in AAA, then this team could be headed for a, you know a couple down years because the farm system was really barren. So I, I'm pretty bullish. Again, I think this is a team that'll or bearish. I'm, I think it's a team that'll hover around the 500 mark. But then in September, we'll either be talking about we have the cornerstones of the next great team. It's you know. Robles and Soto and Gray and Cavalli and, uh, and and we feel really good about that. Or we're going to be talking about this team needs needs you know a a real teardown, a, an almost wizard style teardown, if you will. All right, two more for you. Where does Max Scherzer sign? I think Scherzer resigns in L.A. Um, I think the narrative again would be that he goes back home to St. Louis, but the fact is there aren't many teams that are willing to shell out forty million bucks uh, for a pitcher. And the Dodgers are the only team that's shown the willingness to do it. So I think he signs a two-year deal, really short-term deal, maybe three. And I think he gets Trevor Bauer money, and I think he gets it from the Dodgers. The other competitor I would throw out there is the Crosstown Angels, because they're desperate for pitching. Right. While Mike Trout is in his prime, I think the usual suspects, you know, the Red Sox, the Yankees, I think he likes playing on the West Coast, and none of those teams are going to sign someone for that much money. How many more? Hit? I'll just throw out this one stat quickly, Kevin. 20 years ago, the Yankees had a $207 million payroll. This year, the Yankees had a $207 million payroll. So it used to be the Yankees would outspend everyone and, quote, buy championships. They don't do that anymore. That's actually not the Yankees' style. The Dodgers ran the highest payroll by a decent amount, but the Yankees aren't outspending anyone anymore. Right, kind of the perception of the football team that you cover here, that for many years they outspent <laughs> everybody, and then there was a stretch where actually that was more um, perception than reality. All right, that's my last question. You, you're, you're a big fan of our Washington football team. How many more games do they win in their final nine? 
Uh, I mean, if you ask my dad, they're going to win seven. <laughs> Come on. Me, is, does he really believe that? He doesn't believe he that. He is. He's the consummate optimist who yeah. believes Ryan Fitzpatrick's going to come in. Yeah. We're going to win all five divisional games. We're going to get to eight and nine and squeak in in the wild okay. card. That used to I be me, we, but I can't even go yeah. there now. So No, no, no. So what's your but number I'm as the more reasonable and rational uh, son? I think we win three, and we only win three because our division is terrible. And when you're facing the Giants and the Eagles, you've got a puncher's chance. <laughs> Colin, great job. Colin on Twitter is at Sports Gut Check. Follow him, and when you're down in Richmond, um, listen to him on 910 The Fan, or you can certainly listen to his show on the Odyssey app uh, as well. Great job. Good information. Best of luck to you. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much, Kevin. All right, that's it for this uh, Saturday podcast. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Back on Monday.